Welcome back to the Host Dispatch and welcome to the one year anniversary episode. Today, Anar and I are celebrating this milestone with so much joy in our hearts. We are grateful for the opportunity to connect more deeply with each other, with poetry, with great literature, and of course, with you, our dear listeners. In this episode, we reflect upon our very first episode, Poetry for Corin Times, which aired on May 26th, 2020, and we talk about the ways in which the world has changed since then and how it has changed us. We also bring more poetry to the table to help us frame our experience of the last year, so we talk about Moscow in the Plague Year by Marina Tsvetaeva, published by Archipelago Books. And we also discuss BOA Editions, How to Carry Water, Selected Poems by Lucille Clifton. This podcast is so dear to our hearts, and it has been an honor and a joy to share it with you. And we can't wait to share more episodes with you throughout the rest of this season. As always, thanks for listening. Happy one year anniversary of the host dispatch, Anar. Yes. Congratulations, Claire. We have made it to a full year, which seemed impossible, but it's here. It's very <laughs> surreal. Uh, I can't believe we've been doing this podcast for a year. And in going back and listening to the first ever episode of this podcast titled Poetry for Quarantimes, I realized that this is also a bit of an anniversary, not from the very beginning of the pandemic, but it's kind of the anniversary of when we realized or began to realize that quarantine wasn't going to last for two to Mm -hmm. six weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had mentioned in our prep that there is like this sadness to our voices that like knowing who we are in our conversations and how you're one of the only people I get to engage with on a daily basis. I'm like, wow, we were really sad and really lost and um, really struggling around that time. And so to like look back at the first episode and to kind of see where we are now, it's a testament to like the closeness of our team Mm -hmm. and the friendship and support that we have received from each other for this past year. And I call us the dream team. Um, (laughs) I'm so grateful and so lucky that you and Joe are hilarious and brilliant and just kind, beautiful people. But in listening to that first episode, I was just like, wow, our bond has been just really tested and I'm just so happy and so so grateful for you both so me too I am so grateful for you and I was blown away by some of the things you said in that first episode because (laughs) well first of all my memory is so terrible that I couldn't really recall even which poems we talked about you know you just you get one episode out of the way and you move on to the next one especially as as an editor and so it was really like listening to it for the first time in a way. And I was honestly just so impressed that in the midst of all of what we were obviously going through was fear and uncertainty and just a realization that this was our new normal and that life was never going to be the same again. And we were very depressed, <laughs> whether we were allowing ourselves to fully admit that or not, but yeah, even in the midst of that, I was just, I was impressed by all of the things that you had to say about solitude and domesticity and meditation. And it all rang so true, I think, for what ended up happening between yeah. then and now over the past year. It's like finding your childhood journals, kind of, and just being <laughs> like, if only I took the advice that wise me 
was dishing because I feel like I did lose a little bit of that perspective. I kind of was untethered and I'm now returning to meditation and it might just be like something that happens with spring mm-hmm. and like a renewal and things returning. Um, but Claire, I know that you took the concept and the practice of meditation and ran with it around the end of last year, beginning of this year. And I kind of want to hear about your journey because I think that that was the best kernel of wisdom that we had to offer in poetry for quarantines. And um, I think there's something really powerful that comes with just sitting with yourself and listening to your truth. And yeah, I just want to know how that has shaped your last few months. It's funny that we were talking about that all the way back then, because I, for one, was not meditating. (laughs) Poetry was my form of meditation then. Mm -hmm. But I didn't come to it until the end of 2020. And of course, as we all know, 2021 hasn't been that much different in terms of the level of trauma and difficulty that many of us have experienced. Um, Even just in our country on a political level, it has been really fraught. And so um, I'm so glad that even though I came to it kind of late in the game, pandemic wise, (laughs) it turns out that meditation is always a beautiful and helpful tool for mental health. And um, yeah, I committed to doing it every day for a year. And while that was almost immediately disrupted by life, I have really been consistent and meditated for five to 20 minutes, depending on what kind of day I'm having um, most days since the end of last year. And it has been really transformative. It's intended to be this peaceful practice. And I've found it to be the most difficult plunge into my psyche that I could imagine because you are really sitting in confrontation with all of the inner turmoil (laughs) that you possess and all of your inner realities, um, which of course, you know, that turmoil gets amped up the more our outer realities become disastrous, (laughs) for lack of a better word. So, yeah, I mean, it's been really hard. It hasn't been an easy or fun (laughs) exercise. But I think that my takeaway from it is that there's a lot of scary stuff in me that I personally love to ignore and repress. (laughs) That's like my go-to model for coping. And um, it's, of course, not a healthy way to live. And so... I feel so much braver and more courageous now that I am able to sit for increasingly longer periods of time with those thoughts and sometimes find that there's something else to discover beyond all of that anxiety and fear and who knows what else, childhood traumas, etc. There's other things, too, that I didn't realize were in there. And of course, I've been pairing my meditations with a writing practice. So the writing is something I can go back to and realize that I was actually making discoveries about myself that have helped me understand how to take care of myself. I know that we need to take care of each other and supporting our community has been such a big goal for us through this pandemic. And I think that's a beautiful thing that's taken place um, for a lot of people where they realize like, oh, it's crisis mode now. We have to start helping each other and building each other up. The inverse of that is just how do we take care of ourselves and learning how to do that in new ways, really specific ways too. just understanding when I have this certain emotion and feeling in my body that it's time to stop for the day. Like all input, all social media, you know, all television, all even reading. Sometimes it's like the the input just needs to stop. But that's like the biggest lesson I've learned is when I've crossed that threshold, I'll often just ignore those warning signs and just keep taking things in because it's good distraction. Um, Sorry, I'm going on and on. I could just go on and on for a long time because there's so much to it. But it's been 
a really helpful practice. And I have to say, meditation seemed so, oh, above me and beyond me, really. It just seemed like something that other people do, like a really privileged thing to be able to do. But it's actually just sitting. You need almost nothing. You don't even need a quiet space. You should be able to close your eyes and meditate even when there are other sounds. It can actually sometimes help me to stay rooted in like the moment because I'm hearing it all around me. And so five minutes, you know, that's all it is. Five minutes. Wow. I love that you've mentioned that like meditation is an accessible thing and that it is for everyone of all backgrounds, ages, because I agree. It sometimes feels like it's this, like, I'm not wholesome enough to get anything out of this, <laughs> or I'm not quiet enough. And I'm, you know, it's like, I shouldn't feel like I'm barreling through my existence. Mm -hmm. um, I should be able to sit and just be for a moment. Yeah. I'm absolutely inspired by your meditation journey, um, because I have seen how it has impacted you in the best of ways. And I almost want to say that being in the moment is having a moment and that might even be, you know, let me just preface this with saying the pandemic is a nightmare. Yes. It's a horrible, horrible thing. But if it has invited some of us to slow down and look within ourselves and then look without ourselves, I definitely, that is something that I can cherish from all of this grief and horror that we've experienced. And I do love your note about how this has made like host publications as well as ourselves individually give more to our community and connect more with our community um, because it gives us like a, a true purpose. You think about like, what am I beyond myself? Mm -hmm. And I hope that we are just like these balls of joy and compassion and community. Um, because at the end of the day, like, what is it all for? And mm -hmm. I think about Mark Duplass, who I think actually pulled this from like Ramdas, which is this concept of soul points. And it's like, you want to make sure that you're full enough, that you have enough within yourself so that you can give more. And sometimes things fill you up and sometimes even like beautiful, wonderful things that we're passionate about really drain us. And yeah. I think it's so easy to exhaust ourselves with social media and television and just like all of the busyness of the world. For me, it's like compulsively reading the news, which is disgusting. Um, it's too much. I don't do anything productive after like 20 minutes of checking the news. And so I think we're... <laughs> We're headed into this new era of like self-awareness and and compassion. Yeah. And yeah, I hear ourselves last year and there is this tinge of hope, but also like I think we felt lost. There's a sadness to our voices. Um, and some of that I can just go ahead and say it was we were afraid of really messing up the recordings. <laughs> yeah, you can hear the timidness. I think. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, we did episode zero uh, about a year before we started officially recording the podcast. Um, and we were like, audio can sound really bad. Um, <laughs> we could lose files. Yeah. I remember we used to come in with our heavily scripted notes, which just made us more nervous, I think. Yeah. And yeah, so there was this element of like oh no, I'm going to ruin this massive effort that you and I are putting <laughs> together. And um, Well, I just remember feeling like I needed those notes because I thought I would just get on the mic and not really have anything to say because that's kind of what would happen to me in class sometimes when I was nervous in grad school and I wouldn't talk a lot. This is completely different, though. And what I was delighted by was listening to how much we had to say. We didn't just linger <laughs> In one particular topic, the whole episode, in episode one, we really moved around with agility, I think. And uh, and I think that says a lot about what this 
we didn't realize at the time, of course, but what this podcast does for us. Mm -hmm. I think it fills our cups in a particular way we maybe weren't expecting. And I personally expected it to take a lot more out of me. And it turns out that it's actually a complete delight. And I can't even believe how great of a sounding board it is for (laughs) where we're at emotionally, psychologically. Etc. So I hope our listeners are okay with us really just bearing our souls because that seems to be what we like to do on this podcast. Oh man. I like cry so rarely, but I only cry on this podcast because I'm always so moved by by the work that we read, by the conversations we have with our authors, and just by some of the insight that that you and our guests have provided. Um yeah, it's, it's definitely an emotional journey that I absolutely welcome. There have been so many tears, and I really, really cherish those moments on this podcast because they are, you know, what we talk about or what you really liked to talk about in that first episode was, was really trying to connect more deeply with your emotional self and allowing yourself to kind of while out emotionally because you're stuck in your house, you're quarantining, and no one knows what's going to happen. The world is a scary place. Bad things are happening. And, you know, if not then, when? Um, so I, I think that that is still relevant, making a space for those big emotions so that they don't just get buried and fester because that is what happens. Um, So yeah, this podcast is our bubble where we get to come and cry (laughs) at lines of poetry that we love (laughs) and hearing, oh, I think back to Lily's episode and hearing them talk about their father, and just all of the moments we've had. But uh, today, we just wanted to reminisce about this past year and how much it's changed us. Yeah. So obviously, the pandemic is not over. It is raging in certain parts of the world. Um, In the United States, we are so fortunate to have a vaccine rollout that at this point, whoever wants or needs to be vaccinated has access to being vaccinated. And our team is proudly good to go. We're slowly entering the world, um, obviously one foot in and one foot out, (laughs) but we're able to, you know, adapt and step into a new normal um, and kind of understand what that might mean for us. And there's a lot of (laughs) caution, but also... Uh, this there's a space now for joy, just like an abundance of of relief and <laughs> celebration. Mm-hmm. Even this like magic of like people you used to see on the street but didn't ever know, and kind of seeing them reemerge is this like it's just a relief. It's like you're okay. Um, yeah, it's such a strange a strange space to navigate right now and. I'm really excited to discuss some of the poems that we picked for today because they reflect on the past year, but they also look ahead. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great segue into the poet that I selected to talk about today and um, her particular book because I was thinking about the fact that we have lived through something historical and we're still here. And as much as I am so affected by what has happened and so grateful to be here, I think it's also important to contextualize ourselves um, through this historical event in terms of other historical events through history. And I think we can find beautiful relationships to poets who have also written through global trauma or at least national trauma in the case of the poet that I chose. So on our first episode, I talked about Absolute Solitude by Dulce Maria Loinez, and that was published by Archipelago Books. So I found on my shelf for this episode another beautiful collection of poetry 
put out by Archipelago Books, and it is called Moscow in the Plague Year, written by the poet Marina Tsvetaeva. There's no way I'm saying her name correctly, but as always, we'll move past it. (laughs) Um, So she lived from 1892 to 1941, and she is now considered one of the great Russian poets of the 20th century. And she was well-respected by other Russian poets like Anna Akhmatova and Osip Mandelstam. I believe she actually had an affair with Osip Mandelstam. We're not talking about that today, but I can't just let his name slide by without mentioning that. Uh, (laughs) And this collection is translated by Christopher White. And yeah, I don't know a lot about Russian as a language, but... I believe it's fairly difficult to translate into English, so always so impressed with our translators. And uh, so, of course, this title, (laughs) Moscow in the Plague Year, these poems, I believe they were written between 1917 and 1922. So that was the era of the Russian Revolution. So there was a lot of political turmoil, and Marina Tsvetaeva lived in Moscow, And she and her husband were part of the anti-communist party, so they weren't safe. And during this era, there was also a famine. So that really feels like it's more at the heart of this collection than the political stuff, because it greatly affected them. They were not wealthy people, and so they experienced a lot of hardship. And I believe that might be part of where the title is derived from. Um, Moscow in the Plague Year. But anyway, it's a huge collection, and I'm not going to read too, too much, but I will start us off. I think we should start with a sad one. So I'll start us with, on page 207, there is a sequence which is untitled. Two hands, each lowered gently onto a young child's head. I was given two of them, one beneath each hand. Using both, clenched tight and fiercely as I could, I snatched the older from the dark, but lost the younger one. Two hands to fondle and caress those fluffy, tender heads. Two hands within a single night. I had no use for one. Bright upon its slender neck, a dandelion stalk. It's impossible to grasp. My child lies in the earth. (sighs) So she had two daughters. And during the famine, they made the decision to uh, drop them off to live for a while at an orphanage where she thought they would be better fed and the younger of the two passed away. Uh, She died of hunger in that orphanage. So that's where this poem comes from. And um, we know so many people lost loved ones this past year. And there's really no comparing the pandemic and the Russian Revolution and famine. It's totally different world events. But It's always so fascinating to me to read grief on the page and just how, A, how easily it translates through space and time. It's so, and and so long ago, you know, early 1900s, and yet it's so palpable, but also how different grief looks from person to person. And there's exclamation points in this poem. (laughs) A dandelion stalk, exclamation point. And then the next lines, it's impossible to grasp my child lies in the earth. There's just such a simultaneity of tenderness and love and grief in this poem that... uh, It's powerful. It's very powerful. I do find myself in this time looking for these poems about grief and grieving and and you're right that it looks different for everyone but it's Mm -hmm. it's really comforting to know that it's not an experience that we sit alone with that 
something that that everyone feels and obviously the circumstances for our grief change from each time we grieve to person to person but that's a beautiful poem I think so too I'm really affected by her repetition of the two hands and how all of a sudden overnight one of her hands is rendered useless because it can't touch the other daughter's fluffy head it's just so it's so simple and so human in our sort of animalistic way of grieving I just really loved it Claire, I don't want to derail you, but there is a poem I read this morning mm-hmm. that would complement this poem so well. Ooh. It's by Lucille Clifton, um, and I'm just going to read it to you. You should. Bouquet. I have gathered my losses into a spray of pain. My parents, my brother, my husband, my innocence all clustered together, durable as daisies. Now I add you, little love, little flower, who walked unannounced into my life and almost blossomed here. That's a beautiful poem. Mm. I love these flowers. Flowers and grief, there's such an easy marriage between them. Um, I like to think it's the regenerative nature of flowers, and they are here so briefly, and then they die. I like that connection. All right, more flowers. This is just an untitled sequence that takes place on page 135 in Moscow in the plague year. There was a time when I was garlanded with flowers, and poets composed stanzas to me. The year 1919's forgotten. I'm a woman. I've forgotten it myself. They say my name at once as in a mirror. I could be an abandoned church. Above me hang heavy clouds of pointless sympathy. And so... Buried alive in Moscow, I wander, a faint smile upon my lips. After three years keeping out of my way, these days you cross the road so we don't meet. Wow. Oh my gosh. When I read the last line, I knew I needed to choose this one. The elegiac quality of it, the reflection on the past, and and the naming of the specific year. It strikes in such a particular way now, over a hundred years later, the year 1919, forgotten. And to think that it was a year that had just taken place for her. This was probably written in 19... Oh, it is written at the end of 1919. So she's saying, I've forgotten the year, and it's not even over yet. There's also some ellipses in this poem in brackets which indicates that there was some language that was lost as in translations of Sappho so I think there's a kind of disjointedness to the poem that I really love they say my name at once as in a mirror I could be an abandoned church those lines belong together but it's only through the loss of whatever connected language was in between them that we have them that way And so there's another way of viewing this poem as a reflection on time and how it's actually, the poem itself has sort of um, disintegrated in the way that it originally existed, which is completely unknown to us now, completely forgotten, like the year. But this particular arrangement and the way that we encounter it in English, somehow I read this and I felt like it was a reflection on my past year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the days you cross the road so we don't meet, that's 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. We we cross the road so we don't meet, and there's so much solemnity in that small action. It's so wonderful to think about going back to a time when we didn't have to do that and hopefully moving into a time when we don't. She's so grandiose, too. If you read this collection, there's a lot of self-aggrandizing. 
they say my name, the poets compose stanzas to me. Uh, she, yeah. they, she definitely has <laughs> that quality that I loved in Dulce Maria Loinez's work as well, where she has no qualms about making herself the beloved subject of the poem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love when people tell you, you're going to love me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's like, okay, if you say so. Um, I also love the energy. Like you mentioned about a previous poem, um, the exclamation points. There's ellipses. Mm -hmm. This is someone who keeps you on your toes. Yes. Very charming. It's very charming. Yeah, and something I didn't mention before is that this book, written in the years that it was written, was kind of a poetic diary. That's the way it gets mm. marketed, at least, and described. So in that way, I feel super, super connected to her specifically. And I don't think that the speaker in the poem is some, you know, construction or persona. It's like, it's Marina Tsvetaeva <laughs> suggesting that if you say her name in a mirror, something happens that would happen in an abandoned church. Like, she just has, yeah... She's got a good energy. Do you have another poem for us? Yep. One more. And I wanted to leave us on a lighter note, <laughs> at least in terms of this collection. Um, so this one is from page 116, also an untitled sequence. But on my forehead, stars, take note, are burning. In my right hand, heaven. In my left hand, hell. The silken belt I carry wards off all afflictions. My head reposes on the book of kingly realms. Many are like me here in holy Russia. You should ask the winds. You should ask the wolves. From one land to the next, one city to the next, in my right hand, heaven. In my left hand, hell. I gave you heaven mixed with hell to drink. Now your whole life is like one single day. See me on my way, bridegroom, for seven leagues. Many are like me here in holy Russia. Mm. <laughs> this poem kind of tickles me. I gave you heaven mixed with hell to drink. Now your whole life is like one single day. What? I know. <laughs> I love it so much. It's also just so fascinating to think about how our life has felt like one single day, I think, in, in yeah. a way, for the past year. And we talked about it being hellish in the first episode, but there is this sort of lovely element of that timelessness mm -hmm. of just being held in one one place for so long heaven mixed with hell what does that equal <laughs> just earth yep <laughs> um i also just want to mention i love the first two lines so deeply but on my forehead stars take note are burning <laughs> Her poems are fun to read out loud because they of all are. the exclamation points. I never know how loud to scream <laughs> those lines, but yes, the stars are burning on her forehead and she holds heaven and hell in her hands and gives it to us to drink. Again, she is the godly figure, the all-powerful figure. Um, and so even as a poet who was writing from the depths of famine... Her poetry, and of course it moves in and out of a lot of different tones, and a lot of it is quite colloquial and very diary-like. I've selected poems that are a little more lyrical, but those are the ones that fascinate me to be born out of that and to see the yes. poetic, lyrical mind working in those circumstances like this. Uh, it gives me hope <laughs> that through anything we can write poetry. I love it. What a gift. Mm -hmm. Poets of the past, you know, if we're reflecting on our first episode and how wisdom lurks 
in places that mm-hmm. we don't even realize. <laughs> the poets of the past have words for today and advice for today. It's a gift. Um, mm-hmm. We talk about on this podcast a lot about how time is not real and <laughs> um, how time is not a linear thing. And we look at history and we look at the voices that we've recovered Mm -hmm. from the past. And you realize that the human experience is not a linear one Mm -hmm. and that there's so much wisdom in books that have yet to be translated for us, um, that there's so much wisdom in writers from the past. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in terms of spending a year in relative solitude Books have been such wonderful companions and such a beautiful way to be transported at times, even into dark places. Um, And yeah, to really feel like you have people with you who are talking to you. Um, I've always obviously been a big book nerd, but I don't know that I've ever cherished my books quite the way that I do now after going through the last year. So I'm so... I'm so curious what the world of literature looks like um, post-pandemic because I I feel like you're not the only person to have this renewed, truly and genuine cherishing of the books that you are in possession of. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, here in Austin, we still talk about The Storm, um, Storm Yuri, which left so many without electricity, uh, without heat, without water, Um, we're left to our own devices Mm -hmm. and some of those devices are sometimes only books. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it makes me, it made me definitely appreciate having an abundance of knowledge at my fingertips. Yes. Are you ready to talk about Lucille Clifton? Yes. I'm so excited. Claire, I want to ask you, um, have you had a chance to reflect on a theme in this new season of the pandemic um, that is tinged with a little bit of hope and a little bit of grief. Mm, Okay. Is there like a word that you're going to carry with you moving forward? There is. Give me a moment to remember it. I did throw it at you. No, it's okay. Um, There's a word that I've been writing a lot as like a mantra and thinking about in my meditations, but for some reason it's eluding me. Okay, it's okay. So I bought this book at Malvern Books, Lucille Clifton's How to Carry Water, which is a collection of poems from her expansive bodies of work. Um, So it's like a little taste of several different books. And this was a, a few months ago that I... I got this book and I'm in love. It's beautiful. Um, It was put out by BOA editions, which I call BOA editions, which I'm pretty sure is wrong. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was edited by Aracelis Germain. And the very first thing that I noticed upon opening this book is that it has like a little imprint that's Lucille Clifton's signature. And right above it in her handwriting is the word joy with an exclamation point. Oh, I love it. And it's something that kind of has come back to me. Um, It's a word that I love to hear other people use. And I think I've decided to kind of make it my mantra for this new season Mm -hmm. because I want to (laughs) celebrate. Yeah. I want to celebrate others. I want to celebrate us. I want to celebrate myself. Um, And I think if you just step into a space and think joy, that's a good place to start. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, I feel like there's an emphasis on joy in so much of the media that I've been consuming lately. And I see it on social media a lot, too, and the accounts that I follow that are geared towards racial justice and Mm -hmm. sort of uh, reclaiming BIPOC joy. And I think that that is so important and so wonderful to Mm -hmm. see and that we all would be 
better off if we focused on not just our own joy and seeking it out, but how to like water and nourish other people's joy. And that's one of the words that I have been thinking about as a mantra lately. Nourishment. Yes. Because it works for every single faculty of the human person, right? It's obviously rooted in the body, but it goes all the way up to the soul and everything in between. And it's actionable. (laughs) There's specific little ways to do it. It's massive because it's a lifetime of commitment to that nourishment. And uh, yeah, it's vital to survival. (laughs) And joy is part of that nourishment For sure. Yes. I do like that you mentioned that the word joy is something that you've seen recurring as a BIPOC theme and celebration of themselves and each other and ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to mention just a little bit about Lucille Clifton for those who might not be familiar. So my dearest Lily Thomason shared a couple of Lucille Clifton poems last year and they really resonated with me. And as soon as I saw this gorgeous collection, I knew it was time to dig in. Um, but Lucille Clifton is known for writing poems about the Black experience. Um, joy is at the forefront of a lot of mm-hmm. these poems celebrating the Black body, celebrating Black joy. But also, you know, as a woman of color, I would definitely say that there's a lot of cautiousness that comes with reflecting upon mm-hmm. your joy. So there's a lot of that kind of awareness in, in these poems. And Lucille Clifton is a master, is a legend. Um, and I want everybody to read her and to talk about her and to sit with these poems. Um, so just a quick bio from the back of the book for y'all. Lucille Clifton was an award-winning poet, fiction writer, and author of children's books. Her poetry collection, Blessing the Boats, New and Selected Poems, won the National Book Award for Poetry. In 1988, she became the only author to have two collections selected in the same year as finalists for the Pulitzer Prize with Good Woman, Poems and a Memoir, and Next, New Poems. In 1996, her collection, The Terrible Stories, was a finalist for the National Book Award, Among many of her other awards and accolades are the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, the Frost Medal, and an Emmy Award. In 2013, her posthumously published collection, The Collected Poems of Lucille Clifton, was awarded the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Poetry. Wow, she's done so much. What a life. Like I said, just absolutely legendary. It's a crime that I had never truly sat down with her work before. And so I am here to correct that. (laughs) Yay! I love this. The poems I selected for us today are poems that I hope feed us into this new era. So they are full of hope, joy, lightness, and reflection. And I will start with the poem Blessing the Boats, originally published in Quilting. May the tide that is entering even now, the lip of our understanding, carry you out beyond the face of fear. May you kiss the wind, then turn from it, certain that it will love you back. May you open your eyes to water, water waving forever, and may you in your innocence sail through this to that. Oh. I love that poem. Blessing is is the word for this. It's also like a prayer. Mm. May you, may you, may you. Uh, I love how it's really, it's really image forward, but really unplaceable. So may the tide that is entering even now the lip of our understanding. Mm. I see the tide. I see the lip as a shore. I also can imagine this tide moving into us through the lips. And it's just, it's so weird, but yeah. uh, but just so immediately understandable and um, really beautiful. 
It is strange. And kind of something that I like about it is that it's not saying that what is to come in this new era that we're entering is going to be a full-blown party and like celebration, but it's this kind of a well wish. Hmm. Like you said, it's a prayer. It's like, I hope that this new era, we are all safe and we feel love and that so much good can come from it. But it's also just kind of like, I hope that we're all okay. (laughs) And it's essentially... May we move through this. Yes. May you kiss the wind and then turn from it, certain that it will love your back. So letting the wind push you forward, there's like this subtle movement. <sighs> and then sailing through this to that. It's lovely because the the sort of generality of this to that means that this poem is for everyone mm-hmm. in all circumstances. And that's... That's why we can so easily apply it to what we're going through now, because it's about sailing through something and it doesn't have to be specified in the poem. That's for us to do. Well, I could not select poems for today without really sitting and inviting our feelings of grief. And I mean, Lucille Clifton really does this well Mm -hmm. Um, and in so many different ways, but I wanted to read this poem titled Grief from the collection Blessing the Boats. Grief. Begin with the pain of the grass that bore the weight of Adam, his broken rib mending into Eve. Imagine the original bleeding, Adam moaning in the lamentation of grass. From that garden, through fields of lost and found, to now, to here, to grief for the upright animal, to grief for the horizontal world. Pause, then for the human animal in its coat of many colors. Pause, for the myth of America. Pause, for the myth of America. And pause for the girl with 12 fingers who never learned to cry enough for anything that mattered. Not enough for the fear, not enough for the loss, not enough for the history, not enough for the disregarded planet, not enough for the grass. The end in the garden of regret, with time's bell tolling grief and pain, grief for the grass that is older than Adam, grief for what is born human, grief for what is not. Mm. There's a lot in this poem. There's so much grief for the planet in this poem. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of these poems have this acknowledgement for like environmentalism and for saving the planet, grief for the earth and, and animals. Um, Acknowledging that the grass was there before Adam, before us. (sighs) And, you know, the pausing. The pausing is such a wonderful Mm. pairing with grief and goes fully back to what we were talking about with meditation Mm -hmm. of the simple pause that doesn't try to fix or even analyze The myth of America, for example, it's just a pausing for it, an acknowledgement of it, a place to start with grief, perhaps. But I will close this out with this perfect poem for us to return with. So there's this poem, Entering Earth, that was originally published in previously uncollected poems. Entering Earth The door is bone, push through. You will be dressed in blood, rise up and wobble off toward cavalry. The ground time here will be brief before you remember your actual name. You will have rattled back to bone, hover above the ivory gate, hold your body in your hands. The ground time here is brief. Drop your framework down 
and fly. It has fed you. It will feed your friends. <laughs> it will feed your friends. <laughs> this is so good. Mm. You know, it, it's dark. Um, it wouldn't be on brand for us if it wasn't. Um, right. But I'm comforted by it. Drop your framework down is such a beautifully rhythmic line and all the language in it is so great. But to call it framework, <laughs> and obviously the poem is suggesting that um, entering earth, like your bones entering earth equals leaving the earth in another form. And so to call it framework is to say it's not you. <sighs> The body isn't you. And that's kind of a wonderful thought. You're just dressed in blood in this poem. <laughs> and ground time. Another wonderful use of language that's so simplistic. And so just suggest, again, that there's other types of time for us to experience. Mm. And our time here is just ground time. Yes. Oh, Claire, this has been such a gift to reflect and yeah. to take a moment to welcome and usher a new era of our podcast, a new era of host, of ourselves, of our friendship. Yeah. Um, it's, it is such a gift, Anar, to do this with you. And what a milestone. It's been a year. Congratulations to us. And I would like to actually I was thinking of another Lucille Clifton poem that's not in the book that you talked about. It's in the book that I have, which is called Book of Light, published by Copper Canyon. May I just read the last lines of the poem? Please do. I think it's the perfect sentiment to send us off from here. So I highly recommend the poem Won't You Celebrate With Me by Lucille Clifton from her collection Book of Light. And in it... She expresses that she had no model for life being both non-white and woman, um, no choice to be anything but herself. And so I just want to close us out with the last lines from this poem from Won't You Celebrate With Me. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Isn't that so good? <laughs> Perfect way to end today's podcast. We're still here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. It's mm. perfect. Well, I'm so grateful for my ground time with you. Yes. Same. <laughs> <laughs>